0: Welcome back to the Suzanne Venker Show. First, a quick thanks to my friends at Hair Saloon for providing space at their corporate offices to record this podcast. Hair Saloon's mission has as much to do with the restoration of men as it does with the business of haircutting. They try to make a difference in the lives of thousands of men who come through their doors every week. Hair Saloon is based in St. Louis, Missouri, and if you've ever been interested in running your own business and want to work with great people, I would highly recommend you check out the Hair Saloon Franchise opportunity. Go to hairsaloonfranchise.com. To find out more information, that's hairsalonfranchise.com. Is there more to life than being happy? What gives your life purpose? Do you ever think about your legacy? These are just some of the questions Emily S. Fahani Smith asks in her book, The Power of Meaning. Emily is a writer, editor, and speaker in Washington, DC. Her work draws on psychology, philosophy, and literature to write about the human experience, why we are the way we are, and how we can find grace and meaning in a world that is full of suffering. Emily is also an international speaker who has delivered dozens of keynote addresses and workshops around the country and world. In 2017, she delivered a talk called, There's More to Life Than Being Happy, on the main stage of TED, which was based on her book. It has been viewed over 8 million times. Emily joins us now via Skype. Hello, Emily.
1: Hi, Suzanne.
0: I'm so happy to have you. I'm really excited to talk with you.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So I wanted to um, begin by introducing something that you, I believe, used to do and is no longer do, but is how I first learned about you some years ago. You had an online magazine called Acculturated, which was about the virtues and vices of pop culture and why it resonates with so many people and what it says about the world and what it says about the way we choose to live our lives. And this was very much in keeping with the work I was doing. So I'm wondering how you got into that and whatever happened with that and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, so I um, I was a fairly recent college graduate at the time and was getting my start in journalism. And uh, the, the Templeton Foundation, which is a foundation in Pennsylvania that supports um, a lot of academic research, but also some kind of cultural work as well, had a publishing has a publishing company called Templeton Press. And the editor of Templeton Press, uh, Susan Ariano, was really interested in uh, having some kind of publication or way to talk about pop culture. Um, from a, a right of center perspective, because, you know, so much of the commentary on popular culture is um, is, is left of center. And uh, Susan thought that, you know, pop culture kind of reaches people uh, left, right, middle, everyone's consuming it. And it's kind of the only culture that we all share in common anymore. And so let's have a space where we can kind of talk about it at a, at a deeper level. And You know, she, um, so she asked me to help, help out with that. And so, yeah, for a couple of years, several years, um, I was, I was working with, uh, with Templeton press and kind of running this publication where we, you know, anytime anything would hit in popular culture, like a major movie would come out or, um, some, some book would kind of go viral. We would run articles, just dissecting it a little bit and trying to understand what was really going on, why these things were resonating, um, why we should care.
0: It, I just loved it. I remember, I mean, it's been a little while, but they were excellent articles and just so refreshing, really. That's that's the word that comes to mind, to be able to talk about the culture um, from a different lens. Mm. So I'm going to take a minute now and I'm going to play a clip from your TED Talk that I mentioned earlier, because I think it sort of sums up um, what what you're about and what your book is about that we're going to talk about today. So let's Um, Hang tight for one minute.
1: I used to think the whole purpose of life was pursuing happiness. Everyone said the path to happiness was success, so I searched for that ideal job, that perfect boyfriend, that beautiful apartment. But instead of ever feeling fulfilled, I felt anxious and adrift. And I wasn't alone. My friends, they struggled with this, too. Eventually, I decided to go to graduate school for positive psychology to learn what truly makes people happy. But what I discovered there changed my life. The data showed that chasing happiness can make people unhappy. And what really struck me was this. The suicide rate has been rising around the world, and it recently reached a 30-year high in America. Even though life is getting objectively better by nearly every conceivable standard, more people feel hopeless, depressed and alone. There's an emptiness gnawing away at people, and you don't have to be clinically depressed to feel it. Sooner or later, I think we all wonder, is this all there is? Wow. I have so so much to say and so many
0: questions. My first is that that last question that you asked rhetorically, is this all there is, is such a huge and universal question. And I'm wondering how you came to take on such a big subject.
1: You know, I, um, I think ever since I, I was young, I've had, um, i would describe it as kind of a a religious sensibility i my parents um we we they they were sufis which is this um kind of form of mysticism associated with islam and so growing up i kind of um grew up with seekers you know, in our in our home people would come and and meditate twice a week and um and so i think it just kind of instilled in me this um this seeker uh me- mentality where i wanted to know what what is this all about? You know, uh, is there something bigger that we should be trying to connect to? That's what the Sufis did that I grew up with, you know, through their kind of rituals like meditation and prayer, they're trying to get closer to this um, uh, divine transcendent reality to God. Um, And then eventually, when, um, you know, I, I left home, and like so many people, those the faith tradition that I grew up in, it wasn't no long, it was no longer kind of part of my day to day life um, when I went on off, off to college and and whatnot. And so I began to wonder, okay, so if, is it possible to lead a meaningful life outside of a religious and spiritual context? And if not, then what, like, what is life about, you know, Dostoevsky wrote that, um, if God doesn't exist, then everything is permissible. And so those kinds of big questions um, were in my mind um, in college and then beyond. And so they're another reason why I was so drawn to philosophy in college and then positive psychology in grad school. And I, as a journalist, I kind of ended up taking my writing in that direction because uh, my intuition looking at the research on on and, and and data on things like the growing mental health crisis, uh, the meaning crisis, rising rates of suicide, depression, loneliness. Uh, I interpreted that those uh, statistics as like so many people struggling with this question of, you know, what is this all about? Is this all there is? And what you uh, what pred- what you learned predicts this despair, and this
0: gets to the the heart of your book, The Power of Meaning is not a lack of happiness, but in fact, a lack of having meaning or purpose in life. So that's the theme or the, yeah, the theme of your book. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we get told all the time that um, a good life is a happy life and that we should pursue happiness and that if we do, our lives will be so much better and and I think that you know that it makes sense on its face. If you feel bad, you know the, the solution it would seem is to make yourself feel happier, or if someone you love feels bad, to make them happier in some way. Um, and and yet, you know, that's it turns out that that's that's not exactly right. That when people do feel bad, there's something deeper going on, and and it calls for a, a deeper kind of response than just to make yourself happier. That actually, what people are missing is a sense of meaning in their lives. And, you know, meaning is kind of defined by connecting and contributing to something beyond yourself, feeling like your life is significant and, and that you matter. Whereas happiness is, is, um, is great, but it's this kind of, you know, positive mental, emotional state. It's about, you know, feeling good feeling it's, it's a feeling basically. Um, and it's, it's, it's really valuable, obviously. And people want to be happy and, and, and there's no, nothing wrong with that. But, um, so when we get so focused on happiness, I think we lose track of what really matters, which is crafting a life that that's meaningful and that can, you know, give us that fulfillment that so many people are are yearning for today. No question,
0: this is so topical, and there's different areas, you know, the well, there's different topics within this larger theme that you're covering that we can talk about. But before we get to that, I want to ask you. I, I'm gonna there's a couple of Passages in your book I'm going to point out and ask you to explain. You you said on, chat, on page 15 that the pursuit of happiness, if you're searching for happiness, then it's linked to selfish behavior or being a taker rather than a giver. Whereas if you're searching or wanting to lead a more meaningful life, by contrast, you're going to be more of a giver. I thought that was incredibly insightful and important because, um, it's, this is certainly true in the area of relationships, which mm-hmm. is my interest. And I, I know yours as well. And so it, it applies perfectly to marriage and relationships.
1: Yeah. And I remember when I came across the study that had that finding about givers and takers and, and kind of being a happy life, being associated with being a taker and, and a meaningful life being associated with being a giver that, that I thought that was pretty provocative, um, because it does kind of, it just shows, you know, I mean, the definition of happiness is kind of, is getting what you want. Um, and, and so it, that's, that's why, you know, that, that's why it would make sense that people who are happier are kind of focused on get, getting what they want. Um, whereas meaning if it's about connecting, and contributing to something beyond yourself you're kind of giving yourself away um and you know to your point about relationships i think that a lot of times what what people especially you know people young in love um or you know in, in earlier in their fate in their relationship stages um struggle with is this balance between understanding well what am i Am I supposed to be focused on getting a lot out of this relationship or what my, what my spouse or partner should be giving to me, or should I be focused on what I give to the relationship and, and, and to my partner? So, um, I thought it was a really uh, valuable way of thinking about this distinction between meaning and happiness and the kind of. The, how it affects the choices that we make in our lives.
0: Absolutely. And the fact, of course, we know that the culture we know which side of the culture's gonna come down on. I mean, you're you know, the whole concept of, of relationships and longevity and what's really involved in that is not what is um is not what the culture espouses. So we're up against, our young people in particular are up against a culture that's not very helpful on this mm-hmm. front, which just makes it all the more difficult, I think, for them to understand how it really works based on what they're sold on, you know, what idea that they think it's supposed to be. My question for you is, I think you delve into, is whether or not one can find meaning without faith. That seems to Mm -hmm. be a a good component of this. So can you speak to that? Because you did mention, of course, that today more than ever, since religion has been on the decline, of course, that this is even more pertinent today.
1: Yeah, so I think... um, it's a powerful question. I think it's, a, it's a, a struggle that a lot of people have, whether they even realize it or not, because I think there's a lot of people going around life with this kind of feeling of being adrift or or not feeling satisfied um, that I, I think exists because um, there's not really space in our world today for um, transcendence. And 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 um, you know this kind of more religious uh, understanding of the world and you know when I was writing my book I I one of the things that I I, I write about is how meaning comes from these four different pillars um, one is belonging the second is purpose the third is a storytelling or the narratives that we craft about ourselves in the world and then finally transcendence which I, I just mentioned and these like four components of meaning are if you like religion, you used to just give those to people. um, Especially if you were kind of thoughtful and and, and serious about your faith, you know, there was the community which conferred belonging, but also the love of God, which kind of made you feel this, this bigger sense of belonging in the world. Um, These religions give you a sense of purpose in terms of uh, giving you direction on how to live your life. Um, They, uh, they, 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 give you these narratives about why the world is the way it is, why you are the way you are, and just the kind of legends and stories within them that are, you know, instructional, that are kind of, often, yeah, moral instruction. Um, and then transcendence, of course, through the rituals of prayer, meditation, singing, um, fasting, things like this. And so um, I think people who have religion, it's um, again, people who are kind of thoughtful about their faith. Because I think there's some people who just kind of, you know, sleepwalk through their religious commitments as well. But those who take their faith seriously, I think it's a lot easier for them to find meaning versus those who yearn for meaning but are are agnostic or or, or atheist or, or don't have that kind of structure that religion gives. And I think that's part of this bigger story about kind of meaning in our culture in general, which is that. Um, You know, religion and other uh, things like community and and, and tradition and um, ritual, these were these kind of default sources of meaning that people had that gave structure to their lives, that organized their lives um, that today are increasingly falling away. And so people are kind of left on their own to figure out what makes their lives meaningful. Um, and it's possible to do it outside of those, you know, those more traditional structures that used to give our lives meaning. But I think it's harder because, you know, you have the freedom to choose, but that means that you have to choose and, and figure out for yourself what it is that you want to do to kind of lead a meaningful life. Right.
0: And, of course, that leads into another point that you made about self-reflection, and self-knowledge, that in order to live purposefully, those two are absolutely critical. And I've thought a lot about and written about, actually, the difference between living an examined life and an unexamined life, which is essentially what I think you mean there. And we all know people who literally just float through life and don't go any deeper. So for them, (laughs) this is all kind of moot, I guess. But for those of us who who do want to go deeper, um, and make change, let's say, there's no way to do it without being self-reflective.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And again, like, yeah, it's one of the things that's, that I find hopeful, actually, is the the rise of mindfulness uh, meditation and mindfulness as a practice. I think, you know, some people look at it and say, oh, this is just some trend or, or it's it's superficial. But it's actually, you know, this uh, tradition. It's it's a it's a practice that's thousands of years old, coming to us from Hinduism and Buddhism, and it's it's a contemplative practice. And there are versions of it in, you know, Judaism and and Christianity and and Islam as well. And what i think is so great is that um it part of what mindfulness meditation calls on people to do is to to just reflect and to watch their own minds working and um and to understand themselves more deeply in that way and so one of the things that's interesting is that um i think that there are, we have these kind of receptors in our souls or in our psyches for these religious experiences and even though a lot of people aren't actually having those kind of feeding those receptors in a religious context, there are these other ways that we can. And I think, you know, mindfulness meditation is one way. I think journaling um, is another way that we can kind of be introspective. Um, increasingly, you hear about people going on silent retreats of, of one kind or another. And so um, so there are, there are ways that people can kind of fill that yearning within them, um, within or, or without a, a spiritual path. Most women want to get married and stay
0: married. But the culture in which we live undermines them every step of the way. You've been told since the day you were born that you don't need a man, that women are superior to men, and that sex differences have no basis in biology. None of that is true. In Women Who Win at Love, I expose the lies you've been fed for political gain and share the secrets you need to know about male and female nature, sex and desire, marriage and commitment. You will learn the eight dating rules that lead to marriage, why super successful women struggle in love, why love alone is not a reason to get married, and why acting like a man lands women in a ditch. Women Who Win at Love is a bold and countercultural roadmap to help women love and understand men as well as themselves and to find the love they so desperately seek. So head on over to Amazon.com and type in women who win at love and get ready for your life to change. I want to read one one last thing from your book, one paragraph that will just lead in then to another thing I want to talk about. And that is um, where you wrote, purpose sounds big, ending world hunger, big or eliminating nuclear weapons big, but it doesn't have to be. You can also find purpose in being a good parent to your children, creating a more cheerful environment at your office, or making a giraffe's life more pleasant. And this really spoke to me and to the work that I do because so much of this is about um, fighting, again, a culture that says in order to be worthy, you need to do something huge. And this is especially a message that is sent to young women. Mm-hmm. We know that. And they've been getting that since day one. And so part of what I do is to um, basically blow that out of the water and say, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's not how it works. Um, and that, you, that, that the purpose that you find in life does not have to be via a paycheck.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Can you mm-hmm. speak to that? And I'm going to then switch gears into that article that you wrote that I want to ask you about a couple of years ago.
1: Yes. So with that you know at that, that part of that book that you read, you know the purpose it feels like it has to be so big like you know ending a humanitarian crisis. I think that that's another myth that we have about you know meaning and and what a good life is. There's this sense that like people have to go out there and find their cap capital p purpose or their capital c calling in order to Um, have a meaningful life. And in particular, that they have to to find that calling or purpose in their careers. Um, But it turns out that only about a third of people feel like their careers are a calling. And fortunately, there are many more people who still feel their lives are meaningful. So what does that tell us? It tells us that um, you can lead a meaningful life even without feeling like your work is this, you know, burning, um, powerful source of of passion and and meaning and purpose. Um, With that said, I think that it is important to feel like your work does have some meaning, even if it isn't your one true calling or one true purpose, um, because it is where, you know, most of us spend most of our time. And there is, you know, even, you know, there is this even religious perspective about work as um, kind of conferring dignity and being the way that we use the best within us to to serve in some way or to give back to society. And, you know, in in an economy such as ours, like every job exists um, because it's filling some need in the world. And so when you think about what that need is and what your role is in filling it, I think that those are ways to kind of Understand the meaning of your work, even if that work isn't, you know, your calling or, or your one true purpose. Um,
0: and then there's the issue of when you the work that you love. I'm a great example. The work that you love isn't work that's going to get you, you know, rich per se. Um, yeah. So that the calling is much more, and the work that I do is so much more about relationships and making a difference in people's lives. And I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who would do that if they felt that, well, if they could, but then also if they felt that it was honorable work, because I think when you live in such a materialistic society, everything's based on your paycheck. I think that's very difficult to find work that's, I mean, as, my, as far as I'm concerned, you've hit the jackpot. If you find work where you're paid a heck of a lot of money and you also are changing lives every day and getting a lot of fulfillment from it, that's that's cream of the crop.
1: Yeah, definitely. and And I think that, you know, there's for a lot of people as you say that's not going to be the case because you know in in that chapter on purpose i write about uh, zookeepers and how zookeepers are interesting because they they are among among some of the people who rate their jobs as the most meaningful and what are they doing most of the day they're kind of cleaning out the the sties of the animals and um it's you know it's, it's, it's 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 hard manual labor and they're also not paid very much at all and so if you're looking for meaningful work, you sh- you know, and, and that's a priority for you. It, it, there's a, a pay sacrifice that, that you'll likely have to, um, take. And so, you know, that this is, you may not, the work may not pay you in terms of money, what you want, but it pays you in terms of meaning, you know? And so that's, that's kind of a sacrifice that, and it's a choice that people will need to make.
0: Your your what we're talking about reminds me of, um, David Brooks' new book, The Second Mountain, because he, yeah, he talks really, it's basically the same message, that the people who've had career success know, when they compare it to their personal lives, that it pales, it absolutely pales, and I I know he has a story about learning that the hard way and whatnot, but it's very similar to this. Um,
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great
0: book. It is a great book, and I, um, yeah, they kind of go well together, yours and his, (laughs) Um, okay, I want to switch gears real quick and talk about um, this article that you wrote because I actually had Susan Patton on a few weeks ago. Mm. And so that's what caught my eye in, in your Wall Street Journal article that says, Find a Man Today, Graduate Tomorrow,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: about which, you know. Uh, people will know if they heard this podcast that she said, you know, women should find a husband when they're in college because it's so much easier and listed all the reasons why. And then that caused a big hoopla at the time when she wrote it. And you wrote a supportive article in response to that. And the gist of it, i correct me if I'm wrong, but in your article was exactly what we're talking about, that there's so much more to happiness than career success. Mm-hmm. So your mm-hmm. point on supporting her was to say, hey, this isn't such a crazy idea. And by the way, I kind of I kind of did the same thing. So you want to tell your story on that?
1: Yeah. So I, um, I, I was lucky enough to, to meet, um, my husband in college. Um, and you know, there's a few things that I I can say. One is that the, I think that, um, one of the most unfortunate things that, um, one of the most unfortunate messages that young people get, especially if they're, um, in like living in high achievement, achievement oriented cultures where, um, parents and 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 their peers and and themselves are really focused on kind of career success, getting into a good college. Um, they don't, you know, they're told constantly that like getting into the right college or getting a good job is what the whole point of like their lives are about, and their lives right now are are focused on working towards those goals. And yet at the same time, they're at the age where they should also be. Um, figuring out, like, how, learning how to have relationships, romantic relationships, learning how to be intimate. Um, This is, like, a really important psychological task that you're supposed to be figuring out in um, emerging adulthood, young adulthood. And a lot of young people just completely miss out on that because they're so focused on their schoolwork. And and so – Um, I think that it's what happens. And I see this a lot with my friends now, um, in DC a lot, you know, we're all in our thirties, the ones who aren't married, um, who were super career oriented set are saying now, like, I wish people would have told me then, um, to have focused more on relationships because now I feel like, I'm getting older and I want to have kids and they're starting to feel a little anxious about whether they're going to be able to accomplish their relationship goals because they put them off for so long. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, you know, I, I, I feel lucky that my husband and I met in college. I was definitely one of those people who was super focused on school and, and career. Um, and if I hadn't have met, um, my husband in college, I see the dating scene now, especially with online dating and what, um, how how difficult um, it seems today to find someone when you're not in an environment where you're surrounded by people who are your age, who you have some common interests with. Um, so I, I just think it, I think it makes sense to put more of a priority on that in college um, rather than focusing solely on career and education.
0: Well, amen to that. Obviously, I completely agree. And um, that's certainly my message. So I, I, this has been a great conversation, Emily. I really appreciate your coming on. Where can people learn more about your work?
1: Uh, I have a website, which is my full name, smith.com, And you know you can find more information about my book and my other writing there. And then my book, The Power of Meaning, is on Amazon and, and where books are sold.
0: Awesome. This has been great. Really appreciate Emily.
1: Thank you so much. Thank
0: you. So that wraps up another edition of The Suzanne Venker Show. My guest today was writer Emily S. smith Don't forget to tune in next week when we talk to divorce lawyer James Sexton about how to keep your marriage strong. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And please do take two minutes to give us your review. And if you have a question or a comment for me, go to Suzanne at the com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.